Hello and welcome to the Rear Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Reorg Simon Chatsberg and Lee Buckheit, honorary professor at the University of Edinburgh Law School and formerly head of the Sovereign Practice Group at Clary Gottlieb, discuss value recovery instruments in the context of sovereign debt restructurings. In our weekly review coverage, 13 debtors filed for Chapter 11 over the past week, including Monotronics, Venator, and Envision. Team Health, Genesis Care, At Home Group, U.S. Renal Care, and others eye potential restructurings, and Serta Simmons kicks off combined confirmation in 2020 up-tier exchange transaction trial. And as always, a preview of what's coming next week. It's Monday, May 22nd. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Primary Review. My name is Simon Schatzberg and I'm a reporter on the Americas team at Reorg. Today we are joined by Lee Bookheit and we'll be talking about value recovery instruments and sovereign debt restructurings. Lee Bookheit is honorary professor at the University of Edinburgh Law School. He spent more than four decades at Cleary Gottlieb, where he was a leading practitioner in the sovereign debt restructuring space. His experience in sovereign debt restructurings extends back to the Latin American debt crisis of the 1980s where he helped restructure the debts of Mexico and Guatemala. Since then, he has advised governments in many of the biggest restructurings, including Iraq after the fall of Saddam Hussein, Argentina, and Greece. Mr. Bukhite, welcome. Thank you, Simon. So today, I wanted to talk to you about so-called value recovery mechanisms or value recovery instruments in the context of sovereign debt restructurings. Mm-hmm. And recently, we've been hearing a little bit about VRIs in the context of the ongoing restructuring in Suriname, which is kind of a special case, and we'll loop back to that. But first, I'd like to talk about the more general concept of value recovery and then the earlier history. So what was the need that VRIs developed out of? Why would a commercial creditor ask for something like this? Okay, let me set it in the broader context of a sovereign debt renegotiation. The IMF comes in and produces a debt sustainability analysis, a DSA. That is the funds, the fund staff's uh, guess as to what package of fiscal adjustment measures and debt restructuring will be needed to return the country to a sustainable debt position in the future. But of course, the DSA is really nothing more than a compilation of assumptions about what the future will hold, assumptions about commodity prices, assumptions about interest rates, uh, GDP growth, etc. And the problem is those assumptions inevitably are going to be inaccurate. No one knows the future. For the first couple of years, the assumptions are educated guesses. Years three to five, they're speculations. After year five, frankly, they are an exercise in occult divination. No one knows what the price of oil is going to be in the year 2035. So the concern that creditors have, all creditors, is if you base a debt restructuring upon a debt sustainability analysis that calls for 
meeting certain targets in the future, a debt to GDP ratio, a gross financing needs number, something like that. If those assumptions about the future turn out to be excessively pessimistic and, and the future for the country is better, uh, the creditors will say, quite understandably, uh, we gave debt relief today on the assumption that the DSA was going to be accurate. It turned out to be pessimistic. Things are better. Isn't it fair that we, as in part the authors of the country's prosperity in the future, should be repaid back some of the debt relief that we have given? And that is an emotionally appealing argument. Um, hard, hard to find a principled way to uh, object to that. The concerns are uh, that from the debtor standpoint, whatever value recovery instrument you put into a package, uh, it will also assume that the country has return to prosperity in the future. So you've asked for the history. The history goes back uh, to the Brady deals of the early 1990s for the oil exporting countries, Mexico, Venezuela, Nigeria. Uh, take Mexico. Mexico in 1990 derived 75% of its foreign currency earnings from the sale of oil. If you projected a future in which the price of oil was above a certain threshold, that was a pretty good proxy for saying that Mexico would enjoy a degree of prosperity. Um, and so they designed an oil warrant. It said if the price of oil goes above this level, uh, then payments will, cash payments will start to be made on this instrument. So those were the oil warrants. The problem was Brady countries moved on uh, to uh, countries that did not have a single primary commodity export like oil to which you could tie the value recovery uh, feature. And so, for example, you had countries like Uruguay, where a value recovery instrument was issued. It was quite clever. It it, it took a basket of Uruguayan exports, grain, beef, and so forth, and deflated them by the price of oil, which was an import, <laughs> and that gave you uh, a value recovery instrument. In more recent restructurings, Ukraine, Argentina, most famously Greece, uh, there have been gross domestic product uh, linked warrants. Um, and they have had a somewhat checkered career, I would say, to date. So that that's the history of it. Right. So these kind of these early value recovery instruments, they were kind of bets against the debt sustainability analysis, you could say. In, in a sense, yeah. Okay. Well, they, they were a bet that the debt sustainability analysis would turn out to have been too pessimistic. So that's that is the... the the concern of the creditor, quite quite understandably, you know, we're being asked to give 
permanent debt relief on the assumption that the future will be as you, the DSA author, think it might be. And, and unless your name is Nostradamus, that you're unlikely to know what the future holds. As I say, at the time of the restructuring, uh, the warrant will have value only under a future circumstance in which things are better than the consensus seems to suggest that they will be. And therefore, the creditors caught up in the debt restructuring uh, will tend to view these warrants more as a lottery ticket than as a, an assured payment stream. And so you saw in the 1990s with the early oil warrants, frankly, the market gave them no value at all. And so bond traders would trade the underlying bond and even forget whether they should trade the warrant along with it or not, because it was essentially valueless. It was only when oil began to creep up above those thresholds that people went back and said, gosh, who owns all of these warrants? And I remember in the 1990s, the, we had a devil of a time trying to reconstruct the, the chain of ownership of, of these warrants simply because they were so misprized at the time that they were issued. Right. Right. So you said the, these commercial creditors would view the value recovery instruments kind of like lottery tickets. But I guess like lottery tickets, sometimes there was a big payout. Indeed. Indeed. And you, you asked about Suriname, so maybe we should move on to that. The, the Suriname case is a little different. Uh, Suriname has uh, discovered uh, hydrocarbon deposits offshore. Uh, it will take some period of time in which to exploit those, drill the wells and all the rest of it. But Suriname has a debt problem today. Suriname's bondholders, they have two series of euro bonds in the market. Suriname's bondholders look at this situation as what I think of as an intertemporal problem. So if we could fast forward six or seven years into the future at a time when these oil deposits will have come online and Suriname is selling oil, Suriname will not need a debt restructuring. But today it does. So how do we bridge that? The value recovery mechanism that they've worked out, as I understand it, for Suriname it says that the bondholders will give both principal haircuts and coupon adjustments today. But if in the future those oil deposits do begin to pay off, then the royalty element of the income from those uh, that, that revenue stream will be used to recompense the bondholders for the debt relief they're giving today. In effect, the bondholders are viewing it as a bridge for this intertemporal problem. Uh, it is not everything Suriname will uh, derive by way of revenues from the oil. It's limited to royalties, so-called profit oil, and of course taxes will continue to be uh, uh, given to, not given, but owned by the 
by the Suriname state. So that's a little different kind of value recovery instrument. It isn't that you're speculating about the price of a commodity or even the size of the country's GDP in the future. This is really an engineering uh, decision more than anything else. How quickly can they develop those offshore deposits? How rich will they, they be? And that sort of thing. We're likely to see something like this in Venezuela, if and when Venezuela ever can get around to restructuring its external debt. What has happened there is there's no question Venezuela sits on the largest oil reserves in the world. There's no question that they're there. The issue in Venezuela will be that the oil infrastructure under Chavez and Maduro has so degraded that Venezuela is capable of lifting uh, only a small fraction of what it did, say, 10 years ago. Um, and the issue there will be how quickly can that oil infrastructure be refurbished uh, and begin producing revenue for Venezuela uh, that uh, could be used through a value recovery instrument to sweeten a debt deal today. That would be the issue I expect then. Okay, well, thank you so much, Mr. Buckheit. Not at all. My pleasure, Simon. Good to be with you. For in-court coverage, we take a look at Serta Simmons, Talent Energy Supply, Voyager Digital, Best Wall, and Aldridge Pump. The Serta Simmons debtors' multi-day combined confirmation in 2020 up-tier exchange transaction adversary proceeding trial commenced this week. Looming in the background is Citadel's alternative $315 million exit term loan proposal, which Citadel contends is vastly superior to the restructuring contemplated under the debtor's plan and would provide better treatment to the first lien, first out, and first lien, second out claims, despite the debtor's rejection of their proposal. On the third day of trial, the debtors announced that they had reached a settlement with Apollo regarding the status of first lien debt that Apollo affiliate Northstar attempted to purchase in March 2020. As announced in court, 50% of Apollo's $181 million claim for the debt will be allowed by the debtors, and Apollo will remain in the debtors' list of disqualified lenders. Closing arguments are set for next Thursday, May 25th, but the parties agreed to confer before then to discuss potential resolutions. The Talent Energy Supply Debtors Chapter 11 plan of reorganization went effective on May 17th. Judge Marvin Isger confirmed the plan at a largely uncontested hearing on December 15, 2022, after brokering a resolution of the U.S. Trustee's limited objection to the scope of the exculpation provision, pursuant to which the debtors agreed to eliminate directors and officers other than independent directors from the exculpation clause. In a press release announcing the effective date, CFO John Chesser said the company was pleased to have completed a restructuring expeditiously and emerged a strong balance sheet, $875 million liquidity, significantly less debt, favorable debt ratings in line with our peers, and the support of a new ownership group focusing on positioning talent for a long-term value creation. Judge Michael Wiles approved the Voyager debtors liquidation procedures, which will govern the return of crypto assets to customers under Voyager's confirmed plan. The debtors pivoted to the plan's self-liquidation option when their proposed sale to Binance U.S. fell through. At the liquidation procedures hearing, the debtors revealed that they expect their plan to go effective in the next few days. Additionally, the debtors disclosed that former bankruptcy judge Shelley Chapman had been selected as mediator in the debtors' ongoing dispute with Alameda and related matters, with the mediation scheduled to begin soon after the effectiveness of the plan. 
Judge Laura Beyer heard oral argument this week on the motions to dismiss Bestwall's Texas two-step case and said she would issue a bench ruling on July 28th. The official asbestos claimant committee, or ACC, and two individual claimants have called for dismissal of the debtor's case. This week's oral argument centered on ACC's novel argument for dismissal, which focuses on the bankruptcy clause of the U.S. Constitution rather than the bankruptcy code's dismissal statute as the basis for dismissal. According to the ACC, the Constitution's bankruptcy clause, which empowers Congress to make uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies, implicitly requires financial distress, and therefore, bankruptcy courts lack subject matter jurisdiction over financially healthy companies. Bestwall pushed back, arguing that there's no such thing as constitutional subject matter jurisdiction and that the movements are attempting to repackage their arguments for bad faith dismissal that were rejected in 2019 when the court denied the ACC's first motion to dismiss the case. Team Health Genesis Care at Home Group U.S. Renal Care Malincrot round out this week's list of potential restructurings. Certain lenders to Team Health are getting restricted to discuss a potential balance sheet transaction as the company faces a February 2024 maturity. Team Health's non-extended lenders are working with Aiken Gump as legal counsel. The company recently released first quarter earnings in which EBITDA declined 9.5% year-over-year to $61 million and operating cash flow was negative at $107.4 million. The company had $126 million in cash and full availability on its $300 million revolving credit facility at the end of the quarter. Global oncology service provider Genesis Care is preparing to file for Chapter 11 after being close to running out of liquidity. Sponsor KKR, which owns a 31% stake in the group, is planning to hand over the keys. China Resources Holdings Co., which owns 36% and is a passive investor, is expected to follow suit, which means lenders are set to take control of the company. The group's cash balance fell to $32.4 million at the end of the third quarter and on March 31st, down from $54 million at the end of the second quarter. In conjunction with Adhome's $200 million private placement and anticipated up-tier exchange transaction, the company provided cleansing materials to certain stakeholders containing projections through fiscal year 2028. According to the cleansing materials reviewed by Reorg, the company expects adjusted EBITDA to reach $380 million by fiscal 2028, as compared with $26 million of adjusted EBITDA reported in fiscal 2023. Growth appears to be largely driven by new store growth and a recovery in gross margins that were significantly reduced in fiscal 2023 from high freight costs. U.S. Renal Care announced that it has successfully raised $328 million in new capital to further accelerate its growth and expansion plans. As part of, the US, as part of U.S. Renal's capital raise, the company transferred to 124 clinics in Georgia, Hawaii, Texas, Indiana, and South Texas to an unrestricted subsidiary and raised a $328 million five-year loan paying SOFR plus 875 BIPs with 2% OID. The unsub will transfer $280 million of the proceeds back to the restricted group. Centerbridge led the financing with King Steel participating in the investment. On June 16th, Malincrot is required to pay a $250 million settlement related to settlements reached during its bankruptcy cases. According to Bloomberg, ahead of the payment, certain creditors and lenders have met with legal advisors. Failure to pay the required cash payment on June 16th could trigger an event of default under the opioid agreement, causing all remaining payments to become due and payable by notice of the opioid trust, resulting in an event of default under Malincrot's credit agreement. Envision Healthcare, Monotronics, Venator Materials, Kitty Fenwall, and Vice Media all file for Chapter 11 this week. Envision Healthcare, a Nashville, Tennessee based owner of critical care groups and several of its affiliates, including Amsurge subsidiary, which operates ambulatory surgical centers, filed for Chapter 11 on Monday, May 15th. Debtors filed two restructuring support agreements, one for the Amsurg side of the business and one for the Envision debtors, which would finalize a split of the Amsurg Envision silos resulting from liability management transactions undertaken by the debtors in April and August 2022. Two RSAs would result in a combined deleveraging of approximately $7.4 billion. The court granted all of the Envision and Amsurg debtors proposed first day relief at an uncontested hearing.
Monotronics, a Texas-based smart home security alarm monitoring company, and several affiliates filed a straddle prepackaged Chapter 11 case on May 15th. This is the debtor's second trip through bankruptcy in four years, as the company last emerged in August 2019. The plan would hand 100% of the reorganized equity to holders of 2019 take-back term loans subject to dilution by a $100 million equity rights offering, any equity given to prepetition equity holders under a death trap provision, and equity reserved from a management incentive plan. If the prepetition equity holders do vote to accept the plan, they would share up to 4.6.5% of reorganized equity subject to dilution by the MIP. The debtors seek to fund the plan via $398.6 million dip facility fully backstopped by an ad hoc take-back lender group. The court set a June 26th confirmation hearing at the debtors' uncontested first-day hearing. Chemical manufacturing company Venator filed a prepackaged Chapter 11 on Sunday, May 14th, with an RSA in hand supported by approximately 95% in principle of the term loan claims, 98% in principle of the senior secured note claims, and 94% in principle of the senior unsecured notes claims. The debtors' prepackaged plan contemplates a dip financing with approximately $275 million in new liquidity and a backstop commitment to fund any additional liquidity needed at emergence through, an, through either a rights offering or an exit terminal facility, a roll-up of the prepetition ABL facility, which would be refinanced at emergence, equitization of all the company's other funded debt, including the terminal facility, the senior secured notes, and the senior unsecured notes, repayment in full or reinstatement of all general unsecured claims, and cancellation of existing equity interests. At the first day hearing, the court set the confirmation hearing for June 26th. Debtors are aiming for a short trip to Chapter 11 with the RSA contemplating a 65-day timeline to consummate the plan. Kitty Fenwall, an Ashland, Massachusetts-based industrial fire detection and suppression products company filed for Chapter 11 in the District of Delaware on May 14th to explore strategic options including a potential sale of the company as a going concern to address legacy liabilities related to its National Foam Firefighting Aqueous Film Forming Foams, or AFFF, business line. AFFF, developed by 3M in the U.S. military in the 1960s, has been the target of ongoing multi-district litigation and state court proceedings targeting 3M and others with personal injury and environmental claims. Debtor obtained its requested first-day relief at an uncontested first-day hearing on Tuesday, May 16th. Vice Media, a Brooklyn, New York-based global media company focused on news and culture content that caters to a largely global youth audience, filed for Chapter 11 on May 15th to facilitate a sale process for substantially all its assets. Prepetition debtor... Prepetition Secured Agent Fortress Credit Group is serving as DIP agent under a $60 million DIP facility from existing term lenders consisting of $10 million in new money term loans and a roll-up of $50 million in prepetition term loans. Fortress has also agreed to act as a stocking horse bidder, putting forth a $225 million credit bid of DIP obligations and prepetition obligations. The DIP is being provided by Fortress Investment Group, Soros Fund Management, and Monroe Capital. By acting as stocking horse and funding a dip facility, the prepetition term lenders have agreed to recapitalize and own the debtors. The court generally approved the debtors' request of first-day relief at the first-day hearing on May 16th and entered the interim dip order on Wednesday, May 17th. Top Red Stories this week included Liability management structures continue to evolve as Robert Shaw Amendment strikes Miss Coupon off default list. District Court grants summary judgment to generic ranitidine manufacturers and Zantac Cancer MDL. Acetaminophen MDL court allows California plaintiff's claims against retailer defendants to proceed, dismisses Texas plaintiff's claims against CVS. PacWest reports only 10% drop in deposits. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead. Hi, this is Kate Thomas, and here are some highlights of the week ahead. The core scientific debtors start the week by requesting a 90-day extension of their exclusive periods to file and solicit a Chapter 11 plan 
through July 19th and September 17th, respectively. The debtors received several responses to their extension request, including one from the Official Unsecured Creditors Committee, which supports the extension because terminating exclusivity at this point in the case would only, quote, distract the debtors from the important tasks they need to accomplish in the coming months, unquote. However, several equipment lenders object to the extension because they claim that the debtors are using their collateral without providing adequate protection, and the longer these cases go on, the more the value of their collateral will decrease. On Tuesday, the Purdue Pharma debtors will be seeking approval of the sale of their Avrio assets to their stocking horse, Atlantis Consumer Healthcare, for a total of $397 million. The debtors canceled a May 17th auction for the Avrio assets when they did not receive any qualified bids other than the stocking horse bid. The Purdue Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors has requested that some portion of the proposed sale proceeds be immediately put to use remediating the opioid crisis and compensating victims as, quote, originally contemplated by the now vacated plan, unquote. The Serta Simmons debtors returned to court on Thursday for closing arguments in their combined plan confirmation and adversary proceeding trial after wrapping up the evidentiary portion last week. The debtors are facing several objections to their plan, as well as claims that the 2020 up-tier exchange transaction breached the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing under their 2016 credit agreement. At the conclusion of testimony last week, the debtors and their PTL, non-PTL, and LCM lenders agreed to meet on Monday for a settlement conference in an attempt to resolve or narrow some of the issues at trial. The Clovis Oncology debtors are also scheduled to be in court seeking to disband the official committee of equity holders. The debtors argue that creditors are going to be impaired, quote, no matter what, unquote, and equity will, will undoubtedly be out of the money. Appointing an official committee will only dissipate estate assets further, the debtors say. The equity committee and U.S. trustee disagree, asserting that equity is likely to be in the money because the proceeds from court-approved sales and the likely results of pending litigation, and as a result, the committee may have a meaningful economic interest to protect. That's it for now. Have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the REARC Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the REARC.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week, and see you next Monday.